Welcome to Podcast with Cooper Cherry. Tonight I have Gilbert Rivera joining me. Uh, We are going to be taking a look at the 1984 David Lynch film, Dune. I thought it would be a movie that I've been obsessed with since I saw it as a kid. And uh, Gilbert has actually just finished reading the first novel in the Dune series titled Dune, obviously. I uh, thought I'd be really interesting to get his perspective. He has not seen he had not seen the film until this evening. We just finished screening it. So Gilbert, thanks for coming on. Thanks for enduring this film <laughs> with me. Yeah, it definitely a test of endurance. <laughs> right. It's pretty long um, as well. So Yeah, was that the director's cut or was that the theatrical edition? <laughs> you know what's funny is that actually is that's definitely the theatrical release. Oh man. But now, it's actually great that you brought bring that up because there are a few different cuts of this film. There is actually, and I think this is probably the first version of Dune that I saw was what's called the Alan Smithy version, which I don't know if you know. Is he the editor now? No. So, uh, I mean, it's kind of a common thing in film for, like, as a pseudonym, like a common pseudonym uh, for okay. someone who doesn't necessarily want to have their name associated with a project. And yeah, so David like Lynch David Lynch has definitely obviously, you know, David Lynch, I should go back and clarify I said it was his dune, but he wrote and directed this film. Um and he has very much distanced himself himself from this film over the years and particularly from the cut that I'm referring to. Um, they added in a bunch of additional footage. I think it was a it was a pretty long runtime, like at least three hours. But they added in a lot of different uh, footage that sort of I don't know. If not all of it really fit that well, but it sort of maybe I don't know. It was just some additional kind of fleshing out. I I don't even know where you can find that cut of this film. But I mean, is it worth watching? Eh, I had honestly, I have not seen that cut of the film because it was like a random. It aired on like network TV at one point during this was like at some point during the 80s, maybe early 90s. This this actually aired. I forget what network it was, but it was like one of the four networks, I think. And they, you know, it was like the super long, at least three hours. That's kind of wild. I should have researched that, honestly, because that was the first time that I saw it. Yeah, Yeah. And I just became enthralled. I mean, I was probably like, I don't know. I don't even know if I was in kindergarten at the point where I saw this film. So what I think station was this playing on? Like, was this sci-fi? Was this no, VH1? I'm, no, there, there, there was no sci. Well, no, at this point there was no sci-fi channel. I don't think. So this is just like on NBC. NBC this was on like, like Fox or something. Uh, you know okay. what I mean, like okay. Fox, NBC, ABC. Well, I'm, I'm leaning towards this was probably Fox. I feel like that kind of sticks out in my head. I mean, the rights must have been like five dollars for the screening. Like, <laughs> it, it must have cost nothing. But uh, yes. So the I think the the blue eyes that were rotoscoped into the film is something that kind of caught my imagination as a kid, and I think really yeah. really gripped me. It's still really gripping. It's it's so n- not human, right? Like the eyes glowing and that just being part of the thing. Like Aaliyah is uh, oh Aaliyah, yeah. Aaliyah is is like the creepiest thing <laughs> right? ever. Like and she's creepy in the books and she's creepier in the books, right? Like um I don't think the movie does enough of like service to her as a character, 
mainly because she's just a weapon, right? Like she's this creepy little weapon and that's all she is. Where in the book, she's a real sort of tragedy to existence. Yeah. I guess we should probably as well give a little bit of a synopsis plot. Yeah, sure. Plot synopsis for people that haven't actually read the book or seen the film. So we're definitely looking at a pretty cliche sort of hero's journey. Yeah. I'd say um, it's, it's Riffing, kind of your you know. traditional space opera. Yeah. So we have sort of a neo-feudal society where uh, it's an empire. There is an emperor. There is a sort of parliamentary set of noble houses, I guess, like the House of Lords and the UK would be sort of an analog to this maybe or like Game of Thrones to like the families. Right. Except they each have their own planets in theory. Right. right. Yeah. As opposed to like just portions of Westeros, for example. Right. In Game of Thrones. Right. And it, so one thing that the first book doesn't really spell out and, you know, from I'm on the second book and it doesn't really spell out either is sort of like the economy between yeah, all they, of them. Like, I don't think they ever really quite delve into that very much. The only thing that really ties any of them together and, you know, that's that's apparent in the film too is this substance known as the spice, right? So it's a hero's journey under the context of the world, no, the universe's most precious substance, the spice. And the spice is valuable not for its prophetic qualities, which aren't super well known um, or studied, it sounds like, but actually for its ability to um, not, I don't want to say enhance, but to prolong human life, making space travel more feasible, especially before, I think, uh, or I don't know if it's before, but it must somehow make the folding of space possible. Yeah, I don't remember from the book exactly how they describe folding space, but I, I don't know. If, really, I don't know if. So the book doesn't really describe it that way. The only thing the book describes is, and you know, I could totally be wrong here, um, but all it says is that Chome has a monopoly on space travel. It doesn't necessarily get into. Well, the I thought the guild, the guild had the guild is the. So wait, guild and chome, not the same thing, right? Okay, I don't get that. So the guild is like a silent partner in the chome company. The chome company is sort of like the emperor is essentially like the bo- it's like a board of directors, members of the great houses of the Lonsrod, and then um, I think the the guild and. Even the Benny Gesserit might have some influence as well. But just going straight plot, so we have the son of the Duke of the House of Atreides is there's a feud with the Harkonnen led by the Baron. Um, I think we have a pretty clear sort of like this is a very what is it like Cold War sort of because uh, the film was made in 1984, right? Cold War still going on, so I think there's a very you know, strong argument you could make for the Harkonnens being an analog for the USSR in a sense, and the Atreides definitely representing sort of the West, yeah, American sort of you know what I mean, sort of the good guys, and the Harkonnens are obviously they're sort of mustache twirling villains, at least in the film. I don't remember how subtle it was in the books, but I mean, you know. It's no secret that they're kind of gross looking. Yeah, like, they're sort of grotesque, certainly yeah. in the film portrayal as well. But in the in the film, like Lynch 
fetishizes their this portrayal, right? Like they're gross and he's into it. Yeah. But yeah, yeah back to <laughs> back to plot. We don't know why they're feuding, right? Like that's that's never explored. It's just a hatred as ancient as man in the in the year 10,400 or whatever year it is. Right. They don't they don't get into it. So the Harkonnens are mining spice on Arrakis, which is a planet that isn't a giant desert. There is no, there is no water on Arrakis that we know of, and the spice is vital to space travel, and so is you know the most valuable substance in the universe. And this is the only place in the entire universe that it grows. We don't hear mention of like you know, uh, farm to table melange <laughs> on any other planet. Like for some reason, well, I think reason, you can, right. You can get it like elsewhere, but yeah, it doesn't you get it. Elsewhere. You can't find it. Like they you sell it. Obviously. I think it's but. the only place where it's naturally produced. Right. right. Um, but in, you know, every reading I've had, like, why, why didn't somebody just like figure out that it was the worms? Like, it seems like any inquiry into this would have been like, yeah. yo, where is this coming <laughs> right. from? Not yeah. just, oh, let's just use it. Like this, this seems short-sighted. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so Frank Herbert wrote the book in what, 1965, I believe. And uh, obviously what the film is based on. But so we have Duke Leto representing the Atreides house, Baron Harkonnen. We have the emperor. The Harkonnens are in charge of spice production on Arrakis. The emperor decides to give that fiefdom to the Atreides, and there's basically a plot to assassinate the duke, and the spacing guild is in on it. What they're wanting to do is have the Atreides take over Arrakis. They'll be they have a traitor on the inside of the Atreides family that is going to enable them to topple them once they take control of Arrakis. And then the Harkonnens come back and with the backing of the Emperor. And then we have young Paul Atreides, son of the Duke, sort of this very messianic figure. He... Sort of. (laughs) Right. This was so gross in how it's spelled out, like the birth myth. But we we can go go into that. (laughs) Yeah. Let's get the plot out of the way. So what happens is... The assassination plot, you know, that goes off really well. Uh, Paul and his mother managed to escape to the desert. They joined the indigenous people of Arrakis. I guess not really indigenous, but yeah, essentially the indigenous people of Arrakis, the Fremen, and uh, sort of get involved in their society and lead a revolt against Harkonnen rule with Paul eventually defeating the Emperor's forces, killing the Harkonnen heir, Fade Rutha, in hand-to-hand combat, and he basically takes over as Emperor of the known universe. I mean, that's that's pretty much the broad strokes of the film, right? Yeah, you'll find a lot of similarities with um, The Last Samurai, Dances with Wolves. <laughs> this just random off-planet person takes over an entire society in like two years. <laughs> right. White savior. But they had the savior myth and built into their culture too, right? Which is interesting. By the Ben Gesserit, Benny Gesserit, yeah, yeah, Benny Gesserit. Excuse me. So the Benny Gesserit literally planted this creation myth or this prophet myth in 
pretty much every known culture that they could, right? Um, they pre- they prepare their themselves for their own survival, and part of that is making these crazy myths where they're central figures, right? Um, the mother will be a Bene Gesserit. Like, that's oddly specific, but okay. <laughs> right. Um, so where, the, where was I going with this? I forget. <laughs> um, well, let, let's talk about the movie, right? I, yeah. I know that... Um, well, let's, Oh, I was going to say it was the... The name of this was called the Mission Aro Protiva or something. Yeah, Protativa. Like, it's literally the mission to protect, right? right. <laughs> it's kind of weird. It's, yeah. But let's let's talk about the film, right? Like, so I know one of the most striking things for you is probably the costumes, right? Like, there is some really is interesting design. I want to I save that. I want oh, to get, get through, like, the shitty parts oh, my bad. Let's do it. of this movie or, like... Do we want to cut? Uh, no, no, let's, uh, I, I want to start out, I guess, with perhaps the acting, even though that's definitely, I think the acting actually in this movie is for the most part really well done. I don't think that the writing <laughs> does them a lot of favors, but I can imagine this being really bad if these actors weren't outstanding. Here's, here's my thing with all space opera. Why are most humans in this like far off future? Why do they have British accents? <laughs> we see it in Star Wars. We see it here, um, but I think less so than most. No, to I be think, honest, no, I think more so. Um, more so, if anything. Like, well, it it follows the same exact pitfalls that Star Wars does. The hero speaks American. That seems well, odd, yeah. right? Like it's interesting because it's a very multicultural cast, um, kind of like there Not aren't really there's mo- there's in terms of any people of but yeah people of color there's like there's nobody zero <laughs> there's nobody even though uh, I mean I think the parallel between uh, the Fremen and people from the Middle East are is is very obvious right? yeah like in absolutely. the books. but there's not a single brown person in that film yeah so sorry I I think I misspoke I, I meant the vocal acting or whatever was pretty was kind of diverse like there's scottish there's british there's american there's some spanish maybe portuguese like type accents right right all in english but um so that's interesting like i i don't know that that's always maybe it's just the uh casting director saying you know trying to get the best actors and not enforcing a particular accent on them but it just seems like a really weird coincidence. That's kind of like my first thing with the acting. And actually the thing that bothers me more is that no one pronounces anything in with any consistency. Yeah, that's definitely a problem too. It's like the land, Lansrod, Lansrod, you know. Maudib. Muadib. Muadib. Yeah, like literally um, a scene will cut to three different people saying it three different ways. And it's not meant to be funny, right? Definitely. I don't know. I I don't think anybody acted very well in that film. Like Patrick Stewart, maybe. All right. Let me let me go down the list. Okay. Let me go down my cast list and and the notes that I've got for everybody. And please, we can you can play off of that. How about Let's that? Let's do it. Some Jose Ferrer, Ferrer as, as the emperor. As the emperor, I thought he was pretty solid. Not a lot. Of, not a lot of weak moments. I think. In his performance overall, I think he carried an element of, you know, he added a little bit of regalness to it, 
uh, I thought he did a pretty solid job. Not a lot of, you know what I mean? He's just a kind of a bit player, yeah. ultimately. But I thought it was pretty convincing. Like, I, you know, pretty strong performance, I think. Not He could you know, be your Galactic Emperor. I, I, you know, it works for me. That works for me. Okay. I, I thought, you know. He's Spanish, by the way, so I guess yeah. I don't know if we count him as brown or not. No, we don't. He definitely doesn't <laughs> quite look it. No, he the Spanish. No, I won't get into it. <laughs> but I'm I'm pretty sure he's Spanish. I, I believe it. Uh, I don't know. For me, the emperor isn't so obviously a tool of the guild or chome as it is in this film, right? Like the only thing that matters is that the spice must flow. Why doesn't the emperor just control Arrakis himself? But well, no, that's a plot hole, not an acting hole, <laughs> right? Okay, so Patrick Stewart was my number two note. I mean, just I'm going through them without any oh, sure. rhyme or reason. But uh, So they're reunited. What a moment. As Gurney Halleck, I think he was outstanding. I really love that quote early on in the, in the film where he's like, Paul's like, they're going to go train. It's a little training sparring session yep. with Gurney. And he's like, Paul's like, I'm, I'm not in the mood. And he's like, Mood, mood is a thing for cattle and love play. <laughs> so great. It's it's good. It's good. Um. So that that's shield training, right? That yeah. They do that in? exactly. But you know what's funny is like, what the fuck? I just can't ima- imagine cattle in, in this, a mood in this universe. <laughs> no, not yeah, at what all. The f- yeah. What's the mood for cattle? Like I. <laughs> I don't get that. Eating a lot I, of grew, grass? I grew up on a cattle ranch and I'm like, what the <laughs> fuck? I'm in a mood for a steak. The, does it, that's not what that means. That can't be. Yeah, I don't think that they have steak in this for right? reality. Yeah, I don't know. Everyone's, I don't know. What, they don't, do they talk about the food technology very no. much? I don't remember anything in the books either. They it don't. It stands out. Um, they don't, I don't think. Okay. Uh, next on my list, I've got Kyle McLaughlin as our lead. Paul. Muadib, Paul Atreides. I thought a little, little bit uneven. I th- overall, I thought he gave a pretty decent performance. I did really like. I, I think his best scene is definitely the scene with where he's tested by Gaius Helen Mohiam, the Reverend Mother of the Bene Gesserit, with the the pain box. He puts his hand in a box. And she holds the gomjabar, which is a poison needle, to his neck. If he removes his hand from the box, she kills him. The idea being to that if he is a human being, he will be able to control his instincts. His instincts will be to remove his hand from the box. That's sort of the test to see if you possess a higher awareness that you can overcome this like sort of basal biological urge. Why are we, and sorry, again, uh, this is a plot question, <laughs> not an acting thing. Why is that what proves you're human? That you can, I get it that it's like a, a, a mind over matter thing, but like anyone, yeah, it, right. anyone who does that is less than human. I, I feel weird about that, but uh, let's talk about Kyle's performance. But I mean, in that scene, his whole, I thought he was great. Yeah, I, I, I think, I believe That's his him. best scene. I believed him in a lot of it. I don't know that he was the right choice for for Maldib, right? Like Maldib is meant to be, and I mean this a movie is the wrong format for this 
for this book, right? This is a Game of Thrones esque novel esque, you yeah, know, world. For sure. I totally agree. Um so I'm I'm not gonna fault him for the timing of the plot or anything like that. But he plays Maudib without the torture of the character. You know, he he plays he focuses on the revenge, the the daddy issue thing, like I I'm gonna revenge you, Dad. That's what he plays, and that's that's not what's interesting about the books for me. Right. And that's not well, I what's think interesting. That's, that's more the writing than, than yeah, his for fault. Sure. Yeah, in but, terms of not he going, pl- he played it with some fervor. Like he played it like he had, like you know, father, father. I mean, that was pretty good. He had some lame scenes, but I don't know if it was like again. I think it's the writing and the editing more than yeah. than him necessarily. Yeah, but I mean, is that a free pass for all of them? Like they all chose to do this. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I mean, it, it again, when I'm looking at the whole film, it's like I can't blame the actors you know what i mean i feel like they did their job they sold this pretty shitty writing really well i thought like under the circumstances i mean i i think overall the acting was really pretty solid aside from some ham-fisted like making the harkonnen just so cartoonishly evil and like even the the baron who i thought was i have more notes on the baron and great moments with the Baron and his acting than any of the other, than anything else by far. But he slipped into these, like, just totally way, like, stage acting yeah. in, in many aspects of the, of the film. You know what I mean? Are we talking about the Baron now? Uh, or are you I'm going to get there. I'm going to get okay. there. I just, I just digressed because uh, I loved his performance. Duke Leto, um, Jurgen Prochnow. I forget where Jurgen's from. I don't think he's... He hasn't been in a lot of films lately. I've never heard of him. I feel like he was in The Seventh Seal or something like that. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that's huge. Oh, was he... Wait, which character did he play? I don't even remember. Doctor whatever? I don't know. <laughs> but I believe, you know, he's a fairly respected actor. I believe it. Um, some of his stuff was kind of... Yeah, and then again, I don't know if it's necessarily the acting or it's the the direction and the and the writing that led to that. But his meeting with Paul early on in the film, uh, they go out onto sort of, I guess, they're overlooking a cliff and they're discussing the move to Arrakis and how the sleeper must awaken, which I thought was really, you know, he said something sleeps inside of us. Right, and we need change to grow, and sort of that was. I've got the some, gist of his speech. I've got some notes. I've got some notes on on that particular piece. Okay. Um. I I think he played the Duke ultimately fine. Like the Duke kind of isn't really a character in the books either. So minimal was great. You know, right. he was meant to be kind of the stoic figure who really cares about people. But I mean. You know, I'm convinced that this guy walked into what is, in retrospect, the most obvious trap ever laid. Right. I believe. Well, it. I mean, they acknowledge it. Yeah, they do. For them. But they also still fall for it. <laughs> I think the line was well, like... Well, the big thing is they weren't expecting Yui's betrayal. They sure. knew that they knew that there was a plot. They didn't know exactly what, where it was going to come from. They felt very secure with the weirding way technology or fighting style as well as their shield you know, presence made them feel sort of invulnerable you even hear Thufur mention this in the film 
Yeah. So I think that really bolstered, like they expected a more traditional type of approach. They didn't know, because you know what I mean? Dr. Yui had the imperial training. He is the last person you would expect to... <laughs> to be broken. Yeah. Exactly. That, I mean, that's why they need to kill him, right? Which is... Yeah, which is like that's that's the ace in the hole. Like that, the plot wouldn't have been able to succeed without Yui shutting down the shields and letting everyone come in. So the plot wouldn't have um, wouldn't have worked if they didn't have a massive single point of failure. So they had <laughs> they had a ton of single points of failure. Like what about the fear? Like what about any of them turning? Like why did any of them have this much access? But that's again. Again, he's I mean, he's he's got the imperial seal, dude. It's right there on his it's tattooed on his dude, forehead whatever. that says this this person is completely loyal. Yeah, but at the same time unquestionably loyal. Yeah, to who though? Like the emperor is the one that set this whole thing in motion, right? Right, but the whole idea is with the imperial training is if so they have these are people that are sent to each house and it doesn't really obviously i think in the book it does mention a little bit about sort of the background of these people but in the film it's portrayed that you know this is a very loyal like i don't even think they really quite they sort of gloss over his imperial training from time to time but they don't really go into it specifically but yeah Yeah, they didn't have time the idea ultimately is these you know what i mean this is not the person that is going to betray you if anyone is going to betray you it's not going to be an imperially trained doctor. All right. Let, let's let's move on from that. But I've got some ideas, especially okay. given that this is also a society that's so advanced, but doesn't trust computers, right? Like Mentats are their only sort of um, knowledge processing units. So I've got some ideas there, but yeah. yeah. Right. We can talk about that. The, the Butlerian Jihad. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next on my list, Sean Phillips as Gaius Helen Mohiam. Great job. I yeah she she might have been number one in terms of performances in this film. I'd say so. Yeah. She just had such oh she had such amazing presence. I, her presence everywhere she went was just incredible. It was downright holy, right? Like <laughs> right? that's what that's what that's what she needed to portray. The sort of like I, um, I'm here with purpose. I know more than you, and here, you know, nothing you can do can hurt me. I, she, she's got the knowledge of, um, of all the Reverend Mothers before her, right? Like you would get that sort of power from this person, and she did a great job. I think her voice really, uh, in many ways, kind of helped. You know what I mean? The voice. That voice, she had such a, I don't know, such a striking voice, vocal register that was kind of harsh, but it it conveyed just like regal uh, regality and power. I kind of have a, I kind of have a crush on Sean Sean Phillips from 1984, dude. Not gonna Doesn't. lie, not gonna <laughs> lie. The that bone would you uh would you think of the the shaved head the cocoon I, the cocoon collar I thought it was dope I loved it uh those exposed temples yeah that was pretty dope it just I don't know her whole bone structure I was feeling it I was definitely feeling her gr- did she have a it looked to me like she had 
a silver ghrelin as well. Yeah. Could you tell? Yeah. Is that, am I making that up? No, you're not. In in the last scene, when they're all sort of gathered in in um, whatever, the dining hall or wherever it is, um, she tries to use the voice on Paul again, and that's where you see straight up the full grill. Yeah, she's like, ah. Yeah. But yeah, she was maybe the best performance in the film, or we sort of agreed. I think so, yeah. Uh, next, Brad Dorif as Piter DeVries. Pretty solid role. I thought his best scene was probably when he's riding the little trolley on Giddy Prime, homeworld of the Harkonnens, and he drinks the Safu juice. Yeah. What did he say there? I It was, it is by will alone I set my mind in motion. That's amazing. And then the, he talks about, it's like, the something about the safu, the lips acquire stains, the thoughts acquire speed, da da da. I wonder if that I mean that's obviously something like the spice, right? It's some substance that does something for him. Um Well I think it's all the I don't think this is I think this is a film only. Right. Yeah, it's not in the books. It's not so in the, the books. The safu juice is something that I yeah, it was sort of yeah, it was a sort of like the spice but it's primarily used by the Mentats, which are the human computers. You know what? It might have also been in the books because they're the person who replaces Piter um, as kind of um, Harkonnen's deputy is addicted to something. And the Baron um, really quickly seizes on that and is like, oh, cool. I know how to, I know how to control this person. He's addicted to something. So maybe that's actually where some of that came from. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, because I noticed Thufur Hawat also had the stained hmm. stained lips from drinking the Safu juice, which I think was just sort of a Lynchian, I don't hmm. know, it was a, I think a way to portray something like Lynchian and weird, but also make the, I don't know, it was a, conveying something interesting about the Mentats and like setting them apart in a way. Well, is it setting them apart or is it actually a parallel to... Um, the life of or the water of life, right? Like, um, the uh, dude, I can never pronounce any of these. The Bene Gesserit, like, they're also in some way culpable for everybody's addiction to the spice, right? Like, they know better and they're fine. Um, they don't typically step on Arrakis themselves because they understand the effects it has on them. But Jessica sends Paul anyway, right? Like, that's that's like part of the tragedy, like that he had to become this person. He didn't really have a choice. Um, but yeah, sorry, sorry. Uh, Gaius, incredible. We're on, we're on Piter, dude. Oh, my bad. Piter. So I'm still Brad, stuck on a... Brad Dorif. He did great. Um, best. So um, I'm going to get into this later with the costume stuff too, but we've um, discussed Mentats a few times, right? And both these Mentats had the eyebrows. So that that I thought was interesting, right? Like that's a quick way to yeah physically set them yeah. apart and help identify them. Yeah, which is actually done throughout the film, and, I, and I've got some interesting thoughts there. Yeah. So I just thought the Safu was just to add another layer of like, you know what I mean? Sort of to like set them apart as a different, you know what I mean? Yeah. Something else besides the eyebrows, because you might not have quite figured How out. How could you what, miss those <laughs> in the context of the film? Sure. Sure. Uh, next, I've got the Baron portrayed by Kenneth McMillan. Again, man, the the it was Baron over the top. I thought, but I want to hear your thoughts. Definitely had some over the top 
like a lot of over the top, really just hamming it up. Sure. Almost staged like acting. But, but I would say for that's maybe 25% of the performance. A lot, or eh, maybe I'm being too generous, but I thought he had some really, uh, just the way he delivered some of the lines. And I mean, he was just great. (laughs) Could have toned it down for sure, but I love. One of my favorite scenes and lines with him is whenever they're in the first meeting, we first meet the Baron and Piter shows up and he has the little canister from Duke Leto, which I wanted to get in this later, but I'll mention it now since it's topical. So we see earlier on in the film, we see Duke Leto um, using his ducal signet ring to seal the make the wax the impression on the wax on this particular canister which i guess the so we have in the society forms of canley which is sort of a i guess it's an acceptable way to conduct a feud in their society but there are specific like you can't just it's not like you can just walk up to someone and kill them without repercussion you have to follow these certain customs. Like there's a whole, like, it's almost like dueling. You know what I mean? Like there's a rule, there's a rule to it. It's not just, you know you know what I mean? It's just not, yeah. it's to, for it to be sanctioned and a feud, you have to follow these, the forms of Canley. That seems odd though. Like, and I, I don't know the forms of Canley, right? But you even see a poison sniffer in this film, right? Um, uh, Paul at some point uses the poison sniffer over something that looks like dog treats and then he eats it and he kind of sighs, right? Um, I think that's meant to convey, oh man, I can't trust anybody. This is much different than my home world. Yeah, right. But actually in the books, they use poison um, sniffers everywhere, right? The only time that Paul and Jessica are ever free from the poison snooper is in the caves of Arrakis. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's interesting that like, I'd like to know more about that. Um, just because, um, I mean, it still seems bourgeois, right? <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, it's absolutely, it's bourgeois. Okay. So we're, again, this is hearkening back. This is a neo-feudal society. Yep. So he's bring. so Lynch is using these sort of, or I guess even Herbert is using these sort of anachronistic, like he's smashing together like this throwback to this feudalistic type of sure. world more romantic like you know what i mean elements mixed with this futuristic like all yeah. this technology well i guess not not really not technology. quite technology yeah but i mean they definitely obviously they have they, they have, have advanced weapons. they have advanced technology well but they don't have computers right and i'd argue so it's sort of, i mean they have space travel so it's there's there's advanced technology right but like they even call um so he's like studying dune or whatever and he, they call them film books so even that right like a computer is is more than just a dvd player right it's it's something that you can interact with and manipulate data with they don't have that right yeah, like right and I, I i think a lot of this movie is about control um so i'll get back to that but it's weird um but in anyway so going back to the baron one of my favorite scenes so he takes so Piter informs him the Duke does not want to speak or meet with you. 
And the Baron, like, takes the fucking thing and throws it... <laughs> into the black water. Into the black water, whatever the fuck that is. Just some Where they creepy... throw all their trash. <laughs> yeah, all the trash goes into the boiling water. <laughs> so, I mean, that's that's another part, right? Like, you can quickly identify with the Atreides and sort of their home planet, and it's beautiful, um, allegedly, whatever. <laughs> um, but with the Harkonnens... The grotesquerie, yeah. It's, it's industrial. Oh, and good point. The thing is, like, I actually don't believe any Atreides. Like, their uniforms are impractical. They're, and we'll, uh, you know, uh, let's talk about the word uniform in all senses, right? But the Harkonnens, um, the Freemen, everybody else was very, I think, more like what space travel would have to be. And that's very fucking functional. Like, everything is there for a purpose versus... Uh, the Atreides and even the Emperor who wear sort of traditional military garb, which is still functional and still sort of um, everyone's wearing the same thing. It's a uniform. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Like that goes into all of their performances as well. Yeah. So the Baron is like, the forms of Canley have been obeyed, throws that into the water. I just thought the way he delivered that line was just fucking great. It's like, the forms of Canley have been obeyed. I tried to do this the right way, but I'm still going to. But like, what a farce, right? Like, from the beginning, we know (laughs) that the emperor is like, yo, you got to take these guys out. Very true. Um, Another part is like, so he brings in Fade and Raban into the room. And he's saying, he's mentioning that they have a traitor in the Atreides house. And he's like, he's like, I won't tell you the traitor is. Of when we'll strike. <laughs> but something about the way that he says that, especially like he's childish like childish homeless. I won't tell you who the traitor is. Come on. You kidding me? Right. He's like, Why why would I trust you? Yeah, he's like, Yeah, I won't tell you the traitor is. So when we'll strike. Well it's it's But so- then he hams it up. Then at the end, like he hams it up with He'll know, he'll know that I that America Conan encompasses doom which is like just cartoonish and stupid. But so But the first but the first part was fire and then it just like slid into hamming it up you know i i'm okay with the hamming it up actually like the in this particular film the harkonnens are so gross and so comical um the baron especially like um as people are working on his you know his probably best in the cast makeup right um it's gross and they're talking about what diseases he has and like how beautiful all his diseases are like this is this means literally like a breeding ground for biological weapons which when we get to costumes i have a lot to say okay we'll get to that um but i wanted to touch on some other things that he did uh so especially the scene with the duke whenever they have the duke yeah, yeah. sort of he's I guess drugged he's, up he's drugged up he's laying there the baron has this sort of gleeful look in his eye you know what i mean he really i thought he portrayed that so well right someone who finally got what they wanted right he, he pulled it off pretty well i was thinking this too i re- made this note i think the baron kind of reminds me of my own grandfather a little bit really especially like especially when my grandfather in his later years gained a lot of weight and he suffered from gout, and he was always in like, in this like motorized chair and shit. Oh shit! So <laughs> definitely His like own na- personal suppressor. Now that I whatever. now that I think about it, especially with that chair, 
that he always sat in. Um, yeah, definitely like some Baron vibes. I think he had the same like light blue colored eyes too that really yeah yeah drove that home for me. Really popped. He's bombastic. For the most part, it works. Um, when he's telling Raban, like you're gonna squeeze the pe-, like that's just I hated that. That's I thought one that of my, was good. It's one of my least fine. favorite scenes, and he's like squeezing his cheeks. I won't even. I don't even get into Raban because that dude's actually been in some other. That, that really? actor's actually been in some other movies, but uh, I won't even touch on him here. Uh, there's one of my another one of my favorite scenes with the Baron is whenever Fade comes out of whatever the fuck like Sting plays Fade Rutha, and yeah. so he comes out of this, I guess the steam bath and his little like metallic G string. And yeah, he just stretches. Fun fact, Sting still looks like that naked. <laughs> right. But the Baron has this sort of glazed over look in his eyes as he's kind of like looking at Raban because he... He's like a pedophile, right? Yeah, he absolutely is a pedophile. Like and he likes young looking boys. Exactly. Or men, maybe. And so I, th- I thought they he really portrayed that sort of... Like I said, he kind of drooped his eyelids a little bit. He's like, fade. Yeah. Lovely Fade. He's like in love with Fade. And I don't, I don't think it's entirely sexual, right? Like Fade is this um, this person who's set to inherit the incredible power that the Baron has um, and sort of like this legacy that he wants to create. Um, but from a physical sort of perspective, he's way superior to the Baron. So even though the Baron feels like he's got to train this person as his protege because he's the new Baron, right? And... I think the Baron is probably a little self-conscious about the way he looks and stuff. Like that's why he's got the suppressor fields like on his thing or whatever, which is a great, you know, I thought he played the floating thing really, really well. I don't know why he's the only one on the planet to do it. Um, Maybe his weight is just that crazy. He's the only one that can afford that shit. I don't know. Probably. <laughs> or needs it. Um, but yeah, fade his his sort of fetish fetishization yeah of fade what do you um, think of sting what's interesting too is that i believe that the plan so the benny jesuit have the breeding program the whole idea was that they were going to have jessica who is paul's mother and duke leto breed and have a girl and so yep. that this girl could actually be wed to fade Rutha, Rutha, right. and that their child would be this prophesied Kwisatz Haderach that the Bene Gesserit have always been right. working towards with this, you know, centuries of, or maybe even thousands of years of genetic, like, breeding and sort of this crazy eugenics program, essentially. Right, against literally, like, um, I don't know, yeah, the, that whole concept really, really bothers me. Um, and Fade is obviously like, and Sting's portrayal is actually, I think, pretty good. Like, the fighting scene at the end is trash, but um, Sting does a good job of sort of just being this aloof cat, right? And Fade, even in um, the books, is is clever like a fox, right? He's not necessarily the biggest guy or anything like that, but he can strike really quickly. He's, he's cunning. Not, he's cunning and doesn't, he's not afraid of a little poison, right? Like, he'll poison you. <laughs> and then the 
Another scene that I thought the Baron really crushed was the one where he and Fade go to Thufur to visit Thufur yeah. with another, again, the the cat. <laughs> with the mouse taped on it? Or yes. the rat taped on it? That Thufur has to That's milk. That's not in the books. <laughs> to, yeah, to, to get the antidote to this poison that the Baron has given him. But I thought that was an amazing scene. So Fade he says, all I see is an Atreides that I want to kill. <laughs> and the Baron's like, no, Fade. He's cool. No, Fade. Thufa's one of us now. He's our Conan now. <laughs> that was just so great. Like the way he like pitched his voice. Yeah. After no, Fade. No, no. It's cool, bro. <laughs> after just. Thufa's a Harkonnen now. Well, after just explaining that he's poisoned Thufir. And the only way he can stay alive is by milking this shaved cat. Like, okay. He's one of you guys for sure. Right. It's a great performance. It's it's like he like mentally disassociated himself to get to that like high register uh, pitch or whatever. For sure. Um, we've got a couple of um, David Lynch regulars that have also appeared in Twin Peaks. We've got Everett McGill as Stilgar. And then we've also got... Um, God, what the fuck's his name? Jack Nance. As the Baron's little lackey. I don't know how best to describe him. Oh, yeah. But he's the one... Okay, so the Baron... He's like playing that weird instrument. Yes. And the Baron... And also the the scene where the Baron survives whenever Duke Leto bites down on the poisoned tooth and kills Piter. He said, I'm alive? He's like, you're alive. (laughs) It was so funny, like, that dude. He always plays such a subdued character in Twin Peaks. He's got to, like, have, like, a role in, like, the production company or something. <laughs> it's so weird that he's just thrown in. I guess Lynch just likes that guy. Yeah, there's probably some... There's got to be something to it, you know what I mean? Yeah, some some critique on something. I think Everett McGill was great as Stilgar. Or pretty pretty solid, not great. I was great. I'll give him a good... I give him a B. Yeah. He had the booming deep voice that I thought worked for Stilgar. You know what I mean? He was sort of, what's yeah. the word? He didn't get very emotional. He's very stoic, kind of kind of fit the mark of what you would imagine a Fremen leader being yeah. in, in many ways. Kind of no nonsense, but yeah. resourceful. Exactly. So pretty solid role there. Yeah. Um, Small, though. Yeah. Like, ultimately, you know... Again, this is a writing thing, but this guy gives his entire people and his entire army to a foreigner within two years. But whatever. <laughs> right. Uh, Richard Jordan as Duncan Idaho. Small role. Pretty pretty solid. Yeah. What's funny is I just, I happen to love Richard Jordan from, he is in The Hunt for Red October. I think he plays the, this like chief of staff or something like that. Hmm. He has a great role in The Hunt for Red October. We played Duncan Idaho well. He, um, I felt like you know Duncan Idaho is an interesting character in that he's he's legendary, right? He's meant to be this person that can kill you very very quickly, but you also like want to grab beers with him as much as possible. So he played that well, I thought. We have Max von Sydow, fucking legend, as Liet Kynes. He did a great job. He just has a great voice. His voice was perfect, especially for the yeah, voiceover narration style that was used in the film. Yeah. Not a bad thing to say about this guy. 
Um, what else do we have? We have Dean Stockwell as Dr. Yui. You will recognize him from many films, but if, you, if you've ever seen the show Quantum Leap, he plays Al. Yeah? Yeah? Mm. Yeah? <laughs> no? No. Scott Bakula, dog? You're too, you're too young for, for Quantum Leap, bruh? I think like it was on sci-fi all the time, wasn't it? Uh, probably so. Yeah. Probably it's that probably on right, right now if we turn it on. <laughs> Anyways, I don't know. Eh, he was kind of meh. Fine. Yeah. Eh. I think it's uh Francesca Annis played the Lady Jessica. I didn't really get anything from it. She was a little melodramatic for the most part. She had some weird scenes, like I thought there was one weird edit where she's like where did it where did it stop? And then like the next scene she's not hysterical. Yeah. That was kind of awkward edit. So this again is like a direction thing, but Lady Jessica is such a badass in the books. Like she she doesn't need Paul. Paul's a burden, right? Like she could go and um live off on her own or die. Like the Duke's dead. That's that's what she really cares about. So one thing I think that was interesting is just how this version of Lady Jessica was so quick or was so unafraid of what she sees in Paul, right? In the books, Lady Jessica is actually very afraid of her own son. She understands, you know, after like not a lot of time that she doesn't have any power over Paul um, and actually can't direct his fate. But this Lady Jessica was even less of a character like you know lady jessica isn't a character in book two so far this she felt absent as lady jessica definitely yeah she has a bigger role in the book for sure i thought it was an yeah they just used her for melodrama so much like she's in there's a scene with her in bed with the duke and she's like oh i'm going to miss caladan so much and she's all like crying and i was just like ah that's terrible yeah it's like okay <laughs> cool but i will say um as a young lad, I think I fell in love with her. <laughs> I was—I definitely had a huge crush on her. On the Lady Jessica. On the Lady Jessica, man. Whew. Thought she was so fine. Yeah, let's talk about Sean Young. <laughs> <laughs> Ironically, she is the next person on my list. She, <laughs> although I, you know, say what you will about Sean Young, I don't dislike her i didn't this role they didn't give her anything to do no also i heard to her yeah it wasn't good it wasn't good it wasn't good it was this pre blade runner or post do we know uh blade runner came out in 82 this came out in 84 so this is post okay hmm. yeah she was she they didn't give her a lot of lines and the lines that they gave her she was very robotic and yeah and she said them twice right like she only really mattered as a character because paul dreamed about her and then there's one right. scene of them making out like on a green screen bed so they could <laughs> overlay it on another scene like that's that's that character yeah not not her best role now ever um but that's pretty much covers what i wanted to talk about as far as the performances can move on next i've got writing which i think obviously is the weakest link yep by far i noticed in the credits that david lynch is the only person credited Dang. for the screenplay Dang. no wonder why he wants to distance himself yeah. 
He ruined it. <laughs> I I really I feel like I should have gone back and done the research in terms of how many what happened in terms of the right the script for this. I'd be interested to know. I'd be really interested to know. I do know that this was first. Dune was originally, I think it was purchased. The rights were purchased like in the seventies, and it kind of languished in development hell for quite some time. Um, And then actually, Joe Dawarski got a hold of it, and there was going to be a Joe Dawarski's version of Dune, which was going to be total. Like he's, if you watch the film. Jodor's he's doing he's like I want he, I, he's like I want the people to have the experience of having done LSD when <laughs> they see the movie but they won't be actually doing LSD <laughs> of course not no. <laughs> and it I was like yes you fucking understand it dude that's exactly what I want to do if I make movies that's what I want that's what I want the experience to be I isn't want... that what Lynch wants too though <laughs> I guess that's true like Good call yeah like isn't that I don't know but, well, I don't but know. So you'll find this interesting. So he was actually had was going to cast... He wanted to have Salvador Dali play the Emperor. I don't see it. <laughs> Orson Welles was going to be the Baron. Wait, what about Dali? No, as- Dali was going to be the... Yeah, Dali was the Emperor. Um, the Baron was going to be Orson Welles. I mean, those would be the interesting choices. I'd prefer to see Dali as Halleck. <laughs> Just this like warrior who breaks into song randomly. <laughs> oh, sorry. Somebody did this really great poster on uh, that I found online of Jodorowsky or not Jodorowsky. Um, sorry, Dolly as the emperor. Hmm. I'll, I'll have to. Yeah, I'll post it in the show notes and uh, I'll send it your way. But I would definitely recommend check check that out. It was going to be this total acid trip take on Dune. Which I'm kind of hoping gets more, is more because actually there are two Dune films in pre-production right now. We have, really? Yeah, Denis Villeneuve will be directing. Who? What is he? What else has he done? He's huge. Blade Runner 2049, right. The Arrival. I think he did like Prisoners or something. Is his? I mean, this is earlier. Just not this. Just shouldn't be a movie. I agree. Yeah, it should be an HBO series. Honestly, yeah. I I completely agree. I mean. Even even a trilogy is just not going to be able. No, to, it's it's too complex. There's too much going on. It it needs an HBO series, right? Hands down. Yeah, agreed. Even the even the like. So okay, one thing I'll praise the movie on in this is maybe about writing is it actually follows the first act pretty well, like the first act of the book. Um, it's it's a little bit too obvious in some parts, but. You know, they tried really hard to stay true to sort of the format of the first act. Right. I do think, yeah, the first half of the film roughly started out. It starts out pretty, Fine. overall, pretty decent. There, There is a little bit, I mean, obviously, like the first scene with the emperor and the guild navigator. I mean, it's just like exposition. Everybody's just spouting exposition here and there, which I thought was sort of... I don't know. Oh, that was cheap, right? And looking back at it in terms of, from a dramatic standpoint, it kind of removes, well, I guess. I mean, you can't have mystery in in two hours, right? True. Not really. To to some degree, I guess there's a mystery of who, you know, they have a trait. Do they? No. Do they mention? They mention Paul. 
Do they um, no, but do they mention the traitor in that in that scene? No, they don't. They just mention. Okay, that so they it's only the Baron. Okay, yeah. so it's only Baron that mentions they they have a traitor. Right. So I like I don't actually know what the Galactic or what they accomplish in that scene because everything's already in motion. Um, the Baron already wants to kill everybody. Uh, the well, they were already so Atreides and Harkonnen were had been feuding for some time. Yeah. Yeah, but for at I mean, least like, a generation, the scheme to actually kill the Atreides, all of this was in motion before the sea whale that is, <laughs> you know, uh, part of the space guild before they before he shows up to give orders like that scene was useless. Everything was already in motion. I'll say that from like a writing perspective. The other thing I'll say is even though it followed, you know, minus that particular scene um, the first part of the book pretty well, the first part of Dune is actually the worst part. Like, it's not that interesting. It's actually just setting the scene, right? There's something weird with Paul. They're moving. Um, there's a lot of danger. That's all the first part of Dune really does. And they do that well. But the only reason the first part of Dune is worth it is because you get, you get parts payoff, two and yeah. three, right? The payoff. We don't get really the payoff here. We get what ends up being a revenge story, which isn't like the the tragedy or the best part of dune is that there's tragedy in revenge especially at this scale and under these circumstances yeah but we'll get to that i was thinking why didn't the why couldn't the guild navigate or the guild send the emperor an email but then i remembered ah there's, there's no, no computers there's no computers <laughs> so i will they don't trust i will half-ass buy that this meeting has to take place in person right <laughs> But yeah, that's I even wrote that note. It was like, couldn't they have sent an email and or saved us some letter. fucking time, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, yo, we'd like this to happen. And then the emperor would have just thrown away because he would have been like, it's already happening. <laughs> Done. Wait, are we still on writing? Yeah. Let's talk, let's talk about the guild for a second and this okay. idea. Um, so the book doesn't really go into the mechanics of space travel, only that there's a monopoly on it. Um, we, in the second book, learn that melange or spice is really important to the thing, but it doesn't exactly, I don't think, maybe it does, but I don't think, use the term folding space. Right. The, it, it, you know, I just assumed they're, they had, you know, some infinite energy source and they were traveling at light speed, but instead they're folding space. The whole point is that they don't move. They move space around them and somehow the spice gives them that power. So that's... Um, I think it's about being able... The, the navigators have some form of prescience so that they're... Whenever they fold space, they don't want to like fold into something. like They don't want to f- fold themselves right into the center of the planet, for example. Oh, got it. Uh, okay, so it's just a navigation tool. They might it's fold. The, the they, thing. Yeah, that's why they call them guild guild navigators. Got it. Okay, but so I don't know. So you got to also remember, I haven't read the books in so long that no, no, no. This I think is, that's right. I don't know if this is canon from the books necessarily. No, that that part is. Um, but I still don't think the space folding thing. Um, like you, you would still need that sort of power even some if you were of just propulsion of some you know what I mean? well even if you were traveling at light speed like it would be really helpful to know that you are going to be where you think you're going to be right so it's still useful in either setting right um where the spice comes in 
But one thing I think that was interesting and isn't in the books is this idea of dream folding uh, or dreams unfolding. So Paul's main power is um, that he can see down into the future, right? Like the tragedy of his of his power is that actually there is no one set timeline, right? Every decision you make actually alters the timeline. Um, I think, you know, some would argue that there's actually a version of reality where everything that could happen has happened, right? Whatever. Yeah. Parallel universes. Yeah. That, that, the, the multiverse, multiverse theory. Yeah. There's an infinite number of universes out there. Which is whatever. Probably true. Who cares? Um, but Paul's ability or Paul's ability in the books is is really, really powerful, but it's also re it can be he understands that he can be really, really wrong. He picks a version um of the future and sees into it, but what he has to learn how to do is learn how to see before that particular vision. So what are the actions? What are the decisions? How do I get there? Like, how, where where is my path now? And how does that path actually look? Or what's the actual path look like? Paul doesn't have that here, right? As far as I know, um, he uses it to predict Chani, uh, Sean Young or whatever. Um, and I guess he sees, you know, that the emperor will be there on a certain day or something. It's not really explained. He knows the storm is coming. He's got some command of the of the the worms. Right. He's got he can control the worms, which he can't do in the book. Um in in this story, you know, Paul ends up being God. And that's not the case in the books. The interesting thing about Paul in the books, and I'll get back to dreamfolding, um is that he understands the weight of this gift and he understands that the consequences are very probably necessarily jihad and he understands that there's very little he can do so even though he's fighting against sort of like his power of like dreams unfolding because he understands his dream is ultimately the death of billions of people right at the hands of his soldiers at the hands of his ideology under his name under his dad's banner this version of paul is okay with that this version of paul is a fascist, right? Like, and Kyle um, actually does this, or McLaughlin does this really, really well. Like, he gets a sick pleasure from everything, right? Like, when he understands that his name is a killing word in this weird version of the weirding way, he's like, fuck yeah. People, <laughs> people can literally shoot sound lasers that kill people by saying my name, fuck yeah. The version of Paul in the books would have been like, this is not good. <laughs> this is a very bad omen and it's not who I want to be or what I want to do. I know that I have to be some of that, but I can't let it get to an extreme. This version of Paul is real dumb. And that's that's part of my problem with it, right? To get back to the dreams unfolding thing. Well, um, I think you're on I think you're on something interesting there. Yeah, I, yeah. I definitely felt like Yeah, I don't think it was quite, I mean, I feel like you're you're exaggerating a little bit that he was like fuck yeah, but I I mean you're <laughs> exaggerating to make a point. I, right. Like I get that. I think he was a, he he was a little bit taken aback. He was like my name is a killing word. He he did to me. It felt like there was. I don't think he definitely displayed like you said the level of horror at that that the was present in the book definitely. But I think there was like this 
sort of realization to some degree like that's present it's kind of quite there but he doesn't really lynch doesn't do us any favors in like unpacking that idea which i think would have been a really compelling way to write this and also sort of even if he like delved into sort of the what i think is interesting in many respects is the trap of prescience like being able to see the future but not being able to quite change it it happen and and like in a character we see in other characters like dr manhattan in the watchmen or somebody like swamp thing in alan moore's run it's like there are these these characters that possess this these abilities that are godlike but they are sure. not they are not gods they are godlike right they're individuals still they are unable to con- they're not necessarily um omniscient or whatever omnipresent i don't know well omnipotent the, the quitsad's heterac is the can be all places at once is yeah. the legend right but even in the legend like that's a bit of that's a bit you know, he can do that, but there are limits to his power. Right. Here we literally see Paul say something and then crack a man, a dead man's chest wide open, and then also the ground split from under him. Right. And then he, you know, rewards the Fremen with somehow making it rain on Dune. Like, th- that, and sorry, to make a real, like a point that like really bothered me, is that this version of Paul, this version of Dune, pays so maddeningly little respect to Fremen culture. Like, part of the tragedy of Paul's jihad is that the Fremen deserve this. Like, they've been, like, literally bred for this. Um, They've been tortured beyond belief, and they've kind of chosen it, right? But they've they've been persecuted against, like, everything they deserve a little bit of revenge is, is actually like the point in the book, right? Like Paul understands that um, changing the status quo will lead to the death of billions of people, but actually it's okay because something greater will result. So like the, uh, you know, overthrowing capitalism perhaps. Well, I've got some thoughts. <laughs> is there a metaphor here? Maybe. Is there a metaphor? I think so. Um, but Message. in the books, in the, or in the movie, they just get water, right? These Fremen who aren't native to Arrakis, they got put there at some point. At some point, uh, with the Ben Gesariot, uh whatever. Missionara protectiva, I believe. With the conditioning of this religious cult um, this put myth? into them, this creation myth, just in case it so happens that, um, you know, a Ben Gesariot witch ends up on the planet. It just so happens that this one time, it like the prophecy came true, but what if it didn't, you know? And I don't know. There's like a real tragedy to these people who essentially, you know, were were treated like slaves or, or were essentially left to die. Um, it's kind of like Australia, but like yeah, not chill. Yeah, I guess that's true, right? <laughs> right. And so in the books, or at least in the first book, like they get some payoff, like they go through with their jihad and, and they can, con- or that's, that's the start of the second book, sorry. Um, and here in this movie, they just get water. They, this, this white savior comes in, snaps his fingers and oh shit, Dune's habitable. Cool. This way of life that we've developed for thousands of years down the toilet. 
we were a weapon for two years for this to happen. That's maddeningly insulting. Um, and in the books, like their culture is one to respect. Um, Paul um, understands that, you know, this sort of like life of comfort and this myth of comfort that he's had all his life has actually weakened him. Um, and living like this is good where we don't get that right. They're just, they're just shock troops for this fascist Paul. <laughs> I thought it was interesting. We're talking about the, the element of prescience. I thought it was kind of a throwaway line with Yui whenever the, the Duke is like, he kill he's killing the Duke, but he's letting him know, you know, you are, you are already or not killing him, but subduing yeah. him. Basically he says, you are already, there was nothing I could do for you. You were already dead. Yeah, dead. And you know, what's interesting too. Now that I think about it is that whenever, uh, Mohim visits Caladan and Tess Paul, she's talking to lady Jessica and she says, you know, for the father, my God, for the father, nothing. Yeah. As in, He's already like that future has He's a like, lamb. The wheels have already been set in motion and there's no there's no stopping it. And I think there's this so there's this subtle recognition going on in the narrative that I I don't know like what was Lynch going for? Like, you know what I mean? He kind of did he intentionally kind of touch on this and like just abandon it? Cuz I feel like that would have been that's sort of the big I the big idea, the big concept that I would have focused on probably most was that element of the story. Yeah, I mean, um, to go, you know, to bring Game of Thrones into it, we know that Sean Bean's character is dead the second he accepts. I guess accepts, that's true. Yeah. Right? Like, he's, that's That's a very fate. similar sort of... Yeah. Sort of role, yeah. I don't know who Paul is in Game of Thrones, but... Cause they, is it Arya? Is Paul Arya? Paul would be probably more like Bran, because Bran is the Not John? three-eyed raven. Well, I guess he's an amalgam character, sort of. He yeah. would be like, yeah, sort of Jon Snow and Bran mixed together. I'd say a little bit of Arya. Because Bran Arya is sort spooky. of... Bran is trapped as well by his knowledge of the future. Uh, that's a good point. You know what I mean? Bran. The past is written, the ink is dry. Also, Max von Sydow, who played, interestingly played the Three-Eyed Raven hmm. in the show, Game of Thrones. Parallel. <laughs> I wonder... You know, how intentional is that? But I mean, yeah. if you can get Max Feinsidow to play <laughs> this, I mean, he's perfect. That's perfect casting. Yeah, I agree. Just like he was for Liet Kynes. <laughs> he he played that actually. Like he might've been my number two. Which is funny too. They kind of throw away a mention. Did you notice? You might not have noticed this, but she, Chani briefly mentions that she's the daughter of Liet. Wait, who is? Chani. Oh, Interesting. In the books, that's also true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I definitely, I, I absolutely remember that from the book for sure. I thought, I thought she was a Stilgar's daughter, but no, she is. Yeah, Liet. Also, I pronounce a lot of these names way differently in my head. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know that I trust this as canon for how to pronounce all this. Um. So let's see. Yeah, I was. The first half is pretty good. Once they join up with the Fremen, I think is when the, I mean, there are some problems early on, but at that point is when we really get into some really bumpy, dicey territory Yeah, with the, with the writing, um, Paul and Chani's relationship in particular, just this series of vignettes. And then yeah. at one point they're like, the narration is Paul and Chani's love grew. Like what the, f that's like the laziest fucking, yeah. right? <laughs> 
Although the the actress who played uh, Princess Ir- uh, Irulan, she had a great voice for some of that narration. It felt very she Bowie-esque. Was per- she was very like stoic and beautiful, yeah. and that's actually Virginia Madsen. Yeah. I noticed in the opening, she has really gigantic... Her front teeth are, are huge. Hmm. They're hu- huge. Huge. And her eyes are different colors. Huh. Like she's one that's, got that's one the eye the that's like green and brown. Ah, maybe they did that intentionally. I think so. Anyway, like she's she's kind of a weirdo in the books. She has a really I don't know if it's the optical illusion of the way they shot the scene, but it's towards the end. She's standing up on the, I guess the dais and with the emperor, and she's got this dress that has a very like plunging neckline, but it's got the collar sort of goes yeah. up, and her neck just looks miles long she looks statuesque what i wonder so that's interesting right like um they obviously did they spent a lot of time on a lot of the um the pieces the the costumes and it's definitely there's some class stuff there too right like um one thing about space is just how fucking hard it is to travel in it and how functional all your clothing has to be like astronauts don't wear those suits because they look cool, even though they do look cool. It's like they need them to live. Um, let's say we figure shit out to where there are no space accidents and nobody, not everybody needs to wear a spacesuit. You still probably wouldn't, you know, bring. Um, let's talk about um, Gurney. Gurney was wearing like a part fur coat. Like that thing looked heavy, and you wouldn't necessarily want that in the future, right? Like every. Um, ounce that you take on a spaceship is going to cost you in terms of of you know it's just like airplanes like the heavier it is the more expensive it is to fly the more energy it takes right so i don't i don't know if somehow folding space like let's every you know um check bags are all free <laughs> um maybe for the royal family it doesn't matter like they can bring whatever yeah, i'm think that's my assumption is that yes this so, is this is these pe- the the wealth that we're talking about in terms of these houses is insane fab we're talking wealth of uh, an entire planet you know right. what i mean yeah good point like if you took the entire wealth that exists on earth with our current technology i think it would still be dwarfed by yeah. the size i mean we're this is 8000 years plus in the future right we're humans uh, inhabit many planets yeah so well let, let's let's take that at, at, at face value right because um one thing that's really interesting is how well they were able to create all of the soldiers and their uniforms especially the harkonnens the atreides kind of just look like they're part of like rebel fighters in star wars right like kind well, of in the it depends at which point you're talking about are you talking about early on they're in sort of the desert khaki, sort of reminiscent of like the British yeah. in India. Yeah. And I think I think it's supposed to evoke that, right? Yeah, like I would think so. They're regal so. colonizers. They're yeah. they're here to do good. Even though they're fucking not. Like <laughs> Yeah, they're just extracting it's like it's a perfect actually metaphor. And I think this is maybe deliberate in Herbert's novel is like a direct parallel between yeah, probably. Western powers going into the Middle East to extract oil. Obviously, the oil, the spice. Yeah, you know what I mean. That's definitely We're all addicted par- to energy. We're that's all part of to it too. The the sort of, I guess the Fremen are sort of this also analog for the Arab people or the Persian. However, you want to yeah. delineate that. I mean, yeah, I don't I think agree. you necessarily have to specify. 
but obviously like a desert culture. Yeah. And even the language, obviously the language of jihad. Mm-hmm. Shahilud, like everything sounds like, even if it's like total bullshit, like it sounds vaguely Middle Eastern and that's right. in the source material, right? Like yeah. I think that's, it's meant to be mystical that way. For sure. It's, it is the other, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's also partly like fetishization of Eastern culture, um, just in kind of a different, just a different flavor, right? Under like a broader like label of Orientalism, yeah, maybe. Yeah, no, I agree with you because, uh, um, yeah, we we see them as very noble, simple people. Like, oh, uh, these savages need this. And anyway, so to get back to this idea of uniformity, um, the the Harkonnens have an interesting, and and we actually find out that they're not necessarily the Harkonnens, right? Like these are the Sandukar. Well, um, I can I can point out the differences. Yeah, uh, tell me that. In the costuming, which I also think is kind of a shit. Like, overall, the costuming in this film is some of the, I think, just fucking amazing. I've loved it forever. It's to this day, literally to this day, it is still my, it has always been my dream to dress like I'm a member of the Spacing Guild. Dude, I I feel like that (laughs) you could start going to Comic Cons and people would be like, oh, what's up, dude? You I think could, I, you I could do this. I think my style is pretty like, without being quite like the costume. I like I'm I'm on the I'm on the I'm on the precipice. Yeah, you're you're on the precipice of uh, what's the name of their planet? Giddy. Wait, no. Yeah, yeah, Giddy Prime. No, no, no. Giddy Prime is the Harkonnens, but yeah, yeah. Well, the, you, the guild. I'm talking Prime. about the guild. But anyways, back back to the costume differences between Harkonnen troops and Sardaukar. So the Sardaukar actually are the ones that have. Basically, it looks like a hazmat suit. Yeah, which I think is a really cheap cop out. I don't. I don't think so. With the green like sort of mask. Okay, now the Harkonnen troops, very almost identical, except instead of like the full on hazmat mask portion, they have like a smaller gas mask style that had sort of the two tubes running along, and it had that, uh, it was more right. of a gas mask yeah. sort of look. Skin a little bit exposed. No, they still had the mask oh, completely okay. on. Um, with a similar, so they only had like an eye slit, whereas the Sardaukar had more of a larger, like a window. View. Yeah, they had more of a larger vantage point from their costuming. So, I mean, let's talk about why those types of costumes are even necessary. This is a reality where atomic weapons and uh, biological weapons, and poison is a very clear example of this are used with a lot of frequency and probably at a mass scale. The only reason why you limit the mobility of your troops like that is, you know, to protect them from this sort of weapon. But they're fighting free men, right? Like free men theoretically don't have access to this type of technology. Um, They somehow had atomics with, with, um, with Paul, I'm guessing those are just old Atreides atomics. Yeah, that's my assumption too. But. but so they weren't wearing those uniforms and that sort of protection because they thought it was going to be used against them. It's because they were fully prepared to use that against the Freeman or the Fremen, right? Like that's that's the only reason why you would wear an atomic battle suit. It's if you're going to use atomics or, um, you know, uh, bioweapons against everybody else. Yeah. So this is a very brutal way to wage warfare um, and you need costumes and uniforms that that serve a very particular function for that so i really really love that they did that 
But with the most human of the entire, uh, you know, cast of characters or whatever being the Atreides, having their fighting forces look like they're fighting um, World War, you know, the, <laughs> right? World War Two, yeah. pretty much. Yeah, like in in the sort of African desert. Like, yeah, what? <laughs> right? Like, yeah, that was weird. That was weird, and I don't know. Like, they also like one thing I don't like about the movie. Um, and we'll go back to costumes is like the books make it very, very clear that like the specter of atomic war is still present 10,000 years later. Like the reason shields were developed the way they were, um, is so that people, you know, it's mutually assured destruction. Like it's, it's written into the books. It's written into, um, the very sort of like weaponry. If we use atomics, then we will die too. That's fucking brilliant. Right. That's great. The movie is a lot more brazen. They're like, yeah, they play fast and loose with them. And I know you're thinking about the scene where they like they're blasting through that wall of rock outside of Arakeen yep. during the storm, and they just they put on the suits temporarily during the explosion. It was like, what's the half life what? of this stuff? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yo, that's still radiated for like ever. <laughs> and I don't know if that's, I don't remember the book well enough to know if that's. I think they maybe. I know use that atomics. Atom- they definitely uh, atomics are definitely mentioned. Yeah, but I don't know how deep they go into it. Plus, I mean, you got to remember at the time that the book was written was like you know it was published in I think sixty five. Right. This is that's only twenty. That's only twenty years following, or right. twenty one years. Well, and the specter of nuclear war hung over everybody's heads. Right. Right. Like, not only had we committed you know this terrible, terrible, terrible bombing on japan but we were also afraid that it would come back to bite us and the russians would do it to us or um you know probably just as bad we would do it to them and then we'd have to live with the sort of like price of that so i felt like dune in sort of like the face of um because every sort of like future book has this problem right if technology is so advanced why is it still so hard to kill people like it's pretty easy right now so (laughs) you have to give um a rationale as to why you would not use this all-powerful weapon it's why star wars has to explain in the first few minutes um oh no i wouldn't use a blaster that's an uncivilized weapon right i'm gonna use this lightsaber it's the same thing right you gotta you gotta handicap um your entire sort of like nerfing plot. <laughs> yeah you do a little bit like you know um i don't know so i thought that was interesting and i thought that they did a really good job on a lot of the costumes. Hated the Atreides. Like I get it. We're supposed to. We're supposed to like them. We're supposed to relate to them. But it's also fucking cheap, right? Like I don't know. I thought. I thought. I hated all of the Atreides stuff. It just looked like gross military garb. And I'm more and more reminded that like all of these people probably deserve to die. Like, <laughs> what is the society that they've set up, and why are they so okay with like being? Um, the puppets to a breeding program for thousands and thousands of years. Like, even if it's kind of secret, you know what I mean? Yeah. I didn't really delve into that element. I didn't really look at the costumes in that way. I think I looked at this film from more of a filmmaking, from a filmmaker's perspective than I normally do. Um, I normally, like, I'm doing more of a literary-type reading of a film, and I, I just... To me, I really lacked, like, I, I just felt like this film, maybe it's that the time that I saw it, I feel like not a lot of it as 
as film really lends itself to a good, you know what I mean? Because like I said, if, if, if he had really delved into some of the prescience, I think there was there was a lot of ground there, like I've mentioned a, few, a couple of times. That's where the most fertile ground for philosophy and really playing with ideas of free will and yeah and ideas like that. And well, but I think also even you know he also passed up the opportunity to reflect the danger of these um, of the movements of of a leader. You know what I mean? Yeah, a single leader that creates this jihad move, this movement right. of jihad. Well, uh, and I think that's really, and you'll find out that's very much explored in the second book, and and subsequently right, in the Paul, series. Up Paul's until, guilty about this, right? Like that guilt is forever, right? Um. So wait, I, I feel like I've been shitting on the movie a lot. <laughs> I, I will say it's okay. There are some good things about. That's why it. I brought. I mean, I think it's good to have the perspective because I like our total experiences with this film are sort of. Reverse. It's like I saw the film as yeah. a kid. <laughs> you saw the film as an adult. As a jaded adult. I read the book as a teenager. You read the book as an adult. So I don't know. There's <laughs> there's something there. Well, here's what I'll say about the movie. We're coming at this at two different experiences. You know yeah, what I mean? Very different. Um, and, and mine's also really, really recent. Um, I'd say that the thing that Lynch and, and sort of team do best is actually creating a field of like, otherworldliness so lynch or sorry um the book does this a little bit but you don't really get sort of like the economics or or the sort of um you get the economics a little bit right like the economics are obvious you control spice you control the entire universe but you don't it's not until the second book that you meet more of the universe where i feel like lynch and team did a really great job of making things feel otherworldly um, I didn't think the navigators would look like space whales. Like I kind of thought they would look like um, uh, shape of water type of creatures, you know, sort of like humans specifically adapted to floating and, and kind of just being smooth, right? Like these guys um, are responsible for guiding ships through space. Like they are all, I don't know. I, I kind of thought shape of water, not space whale from... Um, it actually, to me, it was more of a fetal. Yeah, it's kind of like babies. Like these things are probably grown in there. And it had, you know, its appendages were really small. The brain was giant. Yeah. But I don't know. It looked like a. Ah, trying to think what it looked like. A fucking Kulo face, essentially. <laughs> it was gross. And Definitely one of the probably the guild navigators, maybe the most glaring area where the special effects are bad did not really hold up and i think ultimately that's that's probably throughout the film is the special effects throughout are pretty shit yeah the shields so bad what was that dude it looked like i was playing minecraft like polygons and shit dude very polygonal I, I don't know if uh polygonal what lynch has played minecraft and he probably has got a lawsuit on his hands <laughs> Again, this is like a what? This movie's 34 years old. Right. So special effects definitely don't hold up. I think one of the... That's and not de- something we can fairly... Special effects, on. yeah, we can't really... Can't quite shit on too much. Um, let's see. I have a lot to say about the art direction and costuming. So I, w- I actually would like to touch on cinematography. Yeah. And some of my favorite shots and little nuances about the film. Um, 
So Freddie Fan- Freddie Francis was the DP on this film. I don't know his work that well. Um, overall, I thought the look of the film, aside from the special effects, which obviously he really didn't couldn't play too strong of a role in, like they brought in additional special effects people to handle that portion of the film. But the straight up cinematography, I thought was really well done. What I thought what I thought is super interesting about this film is a lot of it is really, a lot of the scenes are super brightly lit. I don't know if you noticed this, but in the scenes like the Harkonnen and that green room where we first meet the Baron, yeah, um, very bright. Like the lights are, it's like, we've got, I can't imagine the amount of lights that they had to use yeah. to light that shit. Um, and obviously I think they diffused, the, they had a, they probably had a huge light lighting that scene. Yeah. And obviously they diffused it a little bit. But I noticed that a lot. A lot of the scenes as well with the Emperor and his little ship or whatever are yeah, yeah. those were also extremely bright. Obviously you, we've got a lot of external shots. I mean a lot yeah. of bright the darkest stuff was with the Fremen, typically. Those were like the darkest scenes. Some of the scenes in the house in Arakeen or the the palace in Arakeen, excuse me. That was where there was more shadow. And even, yeah, that was where there was shadow. Right. And in the books, it's like suspensor lights everywhere. Um, is what And there were everything. some touches of that yeah. at, you know, on Caladan. Yeah. Or even um, even them moving into um, Arakin, like they, they have them like on top, like when they're setting out like opening boxes and stuff on like proper moving day. One of my favorite shots is the guild ship when they've landed on Kaitain to visit the emperor. Sure. You know what I'm talking about? Where mm. it's kind of, eh. it's early on. It's the scene. It's like right before the navigator is speaking uh, okay. with the emperor. Yeah, it's yeah. like, they've just touched down and there's like guild members that are walking out. Anyways, I thought it looked really cool. Really great start for the film visually. Um, Another standout moment visually is the shot in Arakeen in the palace whenever um, Paul meets Duncan Idaho. Yeah. So he's, I think it's first he's looking, you get a shot looking up the stairwell Mm -hmm. and then you get one looking down and I don't know, that stairwell just looks incredible. The lighting's great. The set design is fantastic. I think it's very much built on the H.R. Geiger-esque. Yeah, look at There's the, definitely a Geiger-esque vibe to it with sort of this techno-organic. Look at the still suits, right? Like the still suits, um, even the sort of like pouches that they use to collect water were shaped off of their ribs. So it was meant to lay like very naturally on their bodies and a lot of sort of like the design of... Yeah, I guess it did follow muscular too because I'm thinking yeah. like from the back, it's like there's two... Mm-hmm. over the glutes you've got two big pouches it's interesting because i mean that that's probably meant to like cool you down too a little bit um even though you know it, it's obviously got to insulate itself in a weird way um so that it doesn't just like evaporate from your body heat um i mean so from set design like if, if you looked at um some of the wall like the scale of the walls especially of, like some of the spaceships and stuff what you'll see is like really, really intricate designs. So that I thought was an interesting choice because that 
isn't necessarily you don't see, functional. You don't see that a lot in why would you in futurism? Spaceship? You know what I mean? Right. That's what I think is kind of cool. Is it had? I would say uh, here's what I want to call it. Too is you had some elements of like baroque, yeah. baroque architecture or style in some of it, particularly on Caladan, the Atreides castle had a lot of very elaborate woodwork, mm-hmm. which I thought was sort of interesting and really like it was that very neat contrast of this, this very far in the future, but still like touching on these more, I guess, analog forms. Yeah. The texture of space as we typically get it in movies is really smooth. Right. Yeah, exactly. There are no... Why would you need it? Like, yeah. that's just going to slow you down or it's going to slow down the manufacturing process. Like, this that that isn't a sign of an efficient people, right? Yeah, but right. We, we already know that they're not necessarily an efficient people. They've given up computers for whatever reason. And they don't trust them anymore. The threat of AI taking over, I think, was ultimately the gist of what led to the Butlerian Jihad. Which I don't think is is not mentioned in the film, but no, it's not in the books. They it was basically a whole conflict regarding destroying computers, hmm. and that's why we a jihad. That's why we have ment- mentats, right? Just in this world, which are analog computers, just people, the people, yeah, yeah, or specially the, trained, and I think they're all men, which that's weird, but whatever, right? Um, let's see. They had some, I thought there was pretty slick use of miniatures in the film. Most of the time, I couldn't quite, I didn't catch it too badly. It really stood, the scene that stood out in terms of being a really bad miniature was the Atreides castle on the cliff. That shit just, that was like, no. Get it out of here. That was the worst one, but I think he really did a great job in most other places aside from some of the obvious where they're doing some type of compositing sure, with screen, green screen, or I don't even know what the technology was at the time, but obviously there's some type of like, I'm pretty sure that the technology that they used to make the eyes blue was like rotoscoping. Mm-hmm. What they used to do lightsabers. Which would be, yeah, kind of similar, I think. So they would actually, I think you that involves actually going and painting, painting directly yeah. on each frame. Which is insane. Which is, yeah, that's fucking painstaking work. Especially, like, what can you imagine if you just fucked up a painting a 35 millimeter frame? Like, <laughs> woo. I need another cut of this, boss. Right. Mr. Um, David Lynch. I, I would not ask him for anything. I feel like he would just yell at me. Another one of my favorite shots that I thought was really super well done, great cinematography, was whenever the Atreides land at Arakeen and the door or whatever comes up in the sun. Yeah. The sun is overwhelmingly bright and you got the sense that that, I mean, they definitely, how did they pull that off? I think you know they pointed I mean? the camera straight at the, <laughs> the sun. I don't know if you could get, they had to use lights as well. I don't think. No, that, they had to. Yeah. I don't think that you get that sort of contrast no. naturally, but I thought it was again, that same scene. Also very cool the way that they captured the sort of the heat. Yeah, because they coming it's, off it's coming up, right? So you right. you feel like Dune is meant to be an oppressive place, right? Like it's not suitable for human life, but here they are. God created Dune to train the faithful. <laughs> I think they mentioned that. Yeah, in the film. I think they do. Yeah, I'd like to know. I 
would really like to find out. I need to ask somebody who knows about cameras and cinematography more than I do as far as like, could you actually like, how did they capture that heat? I mean, obviously it's got to be visible yeah, it's at some be. point, but I mean, this was pretty intense. I don't know if it was just the distance or how they worked that out necessarily. I think it's a Bunsen burner <laughs> under the camera. <laughs> actually, yeah. You know what? That might literally be, That might. honestly, <laughs> that's, you could probably do that. We'll have to do a screen test. Yeah, yeah. With my camera. Let's get cooking. <laughs> um, the scene whenever Paul and Jessica meet the Fremen again. So there's a so we see their perspective. So they're the frame. There's a lightning crash, and then we see all of the Fremen. Right. They're silent. Just show up. That scene from Paul and Jessica's perspective. That frame was awesome. It looked amazing. The shadows, the way that it was lit. Yeah. Fantastic. One of the standout moments so visually what, for me. Visually, um, not too far after that, um, the, the writing is really terrible here, but um, they're on like the top of, um, you know, they're in the Fremen base or whatever, and Paul looks down, and, and there are two sort of like big walls there oh yeah right he looks down i love those scenes they're great they're beautiful the contrast is so nice and he's like oh look uh you know a whole platoon of religious warriors and i'm just like dude really like that's that's a, like what you want to like well he doesn't say that he says something like that like he says something he's, no he's like that. i don't think i never thought there'd be so many he was taking he a, says something about he religion. was taken aback by the amount the number like he never dreamed that there were that many yeah, but they're Warriors. holding like crosses or something too. Like, yeah, they look like priests. Oh yeah, just... I mean it's definitely there's an element of that jihad. I mean it, it is religious war for them, right? But they're not they're not incensed on religion. I don't think as like a culture, like they're very steeped in tradition. But if they don't get religious. They don't get they don't become zealots until Paul. Right. The only thing they're zealot or zealous about is. Uh, literally the transformation, uh, the terraformation of Dune as a planet. That's the only thing they really care about. That's why they preserve water so, so greatly. But Paul arrives and suddenly their entire shift, there's an entire shift, right? Um, they understand that, you, you know, they, I think you said it earlier, or you did say it earlier, um, Arrakis was made to train the faithful, right? Or whatever. Um, they suddenly switch, right? It's it's less about this pretty nice mission of terraforming, and instead it becomes a a jihad. So it's interesting. Like I I, I don't know what that says about Paul. Um, I don't know what that says about people that they can go from A to B or you know zero to sixty like that. In the context of the in the of the novel, yes, I think you're more. Right, but I think in the context of the film, there's he's obvi- he's playing on this even the religious this messianic figure. Paul yeah. is this messianic figure. We get several times throughout the film mentions of it's the legend, it's the legend, and so Which that's isn't the books. that's yes true. But that, I think it's more of an emphasis in into that yeah sort of that side of the film where Paul is more of like a Christ leading these people out of bondage in many you know what I mean. Yeah, it, he's a he's a literal savior. Yeah, 
he is, and obviously in the film too, that, you know what I mean? The focus, he's, he's controlling the worms. He's transmuted the water of life. No man has ever done that. So that lend, that is, that gave me the impression that there is this awe uh, that, that the Fremen have towards Paul that makes him seem like a right. god. And I think this is touched on in the novels, but they, I think whenever you're seeing Paul's inner monologue, it's, it, sort of gives you a little there's more perspective yeah i mean so one thing i think would have been that would have been really interesting to explore is in some senses paul's a hermaphrodite right like he's special because he can see into both um his male and female yeah genetic history genetic something memory. like that yeah. right like he he can look into the place where um, the women cannot go right they see an empty they see this dark passageway and they know it's forbidden um, and paul tells uh, the mother look to that place you dare not look you will see me staring at you um but at, he acknowledges that he can be in both places right he is the person who can be everywhere he can be in all sort of spheres of gender or whatever meaning that has for for this book so I, I kind of wish, like, even in the costumes, like, that had been, like, um, like explored a little bit, right? Because, like, that's actually a very special component of Paul's power. Like, he's got, he can see um, further and better into the future than anybody, not because of his spice addiction, but because of his ability to touch both halves of himself. Um, uh, yeah, tapping into his male, and, yeah. yeah, all right, I like that. So I, I, it's interesting, like that. That's definitely a book observation, right? Because you would never get it from the movie. Yeah. Um, but like, there's there's meant to be a play um, on sort of like, you know, and this is still a very like this was written in an age when like, um, you know, yeah, gender totally was different, different. Yeah. and sex was different, and there was not as good of an understanding or good of an acceptance as we have now, right? Like right. we're all we all benefit from from that sort of knowledge firmly and, entrenched in mm -hmm. massive massive patriarchy the binary is there right and yeah so i i think that's interesting and i mean i could go i could write an entire i could do like 17 hours of like things i wish had been in the movie uh, yeah. it's all just things well, i love from the book right <laughs> um my last shot that i'll discuss is one of my absolute favorites one that stands out is of course alia in the in the desert, she has the Gamjavar on the one hand and the Christ knife, Chris knife in the other, and she's in this sort of like ecstatic state, and the and the wind is blowing like. And she's I wonder what like that waving. kid's doing now. God, that's so great! I love it. What if we had like the, there's read a the gif, credits? A gif of that. Really? There is a gif. I what love if, it. What if we had read the credits and it had been like Drew Barrymore <laughs> or like Leonardo DiCaprio? <laughs> I would have been like, what? <laughs> But yeah, that that's always been a favorite. I mean, she is one of my favorite characters from from the movie. She's so messed up in the movie, especially, but in the book as well. Like in the book, she's a bit more tragic. But yeah, that's a great scene because she's ecstatic with her with having fulfilled or um, fulfilling part of the prophecy, right? Like her part, Alia or Alia of the knife, Alia. Um, let's see. So do you want to delve into costumes and art direction? I'm, d I'm down to have that conversation. I'm ready. 
I mean, I think my big thing was that the uniforms and like this idea of uniformity and like the necessity of uniformity in space travel, especially when, you know, at that globalist scale, you're playing a role. Like you're not on a spaceship if you don't have a role, right? Um, so I, I thought that was interesting because like you needed that. Like you needed that at that scale. You can't, everybody, not everybody can be wearing their favorite shirt and their favorite jeans in space. Like it's not how it's going to work. But what are your, what are your thoughts? Oh, you know what's funny? You were I forgot to mention this earlier when we were talking about the Atreides uniforms is what I thought was super like I it looks kind of cool. Like aesthetically, it's got an interesting look to it, but practically I thought it was didn't make sense was Did you notice how on the rear collar it had that giant flap? Yeah. That was buttoned and it was like it was really exaggerated. I just feel like you could just like I just imagined a giant coming and like sticking their finger in that flap and just flinging yeah. the troops. Or if you, you know what I mean? And the type of hand-to-hand combat that's portrayed in the film too. It's like, this would be a total, you know what I mean? Someone could just like walk up behind you, grab you by that giant handle you've got yeah. at the back of your neck and you're done. You're you done. Know what I mean? You can't escape. So I thought that was funny. But I thought the the look was pretty interesting. Um, it added a little bit, somewhat of a flair to like this, like you're saying, sort of North African campaign, yeah. which is fine. But like, is that really? But, what yeah, we're kind of the like most boring. Years? Yeah. Kind of the most boring elements of it. I think the guild, the little guild guys, I think were one of the more fascinating characters, and just added, they added to that otherworldliness that you yeah. talked about. They were weird. In, in like the best way like i didn't get their costumes but i or like i didn't get the reason they dress that way but i'm sure there is and that's like the fun part to think about right yeah like, exactly when you think about like why the costume designers chose to like do the the radiation suit type thing it's because, probably because there's radiation everywhere um so it's like why you know maybe they uh their home world is so peaceful that they can sort of like go back into that sort of like dress and stuff but you know the question is why were they given or why would they leave such a place like certainly dune has like a ton of like power and maybe they didn't didn't actually have a choice but like it's kind of odd also that they didn't um all come over in still suits like what's the point of of dressing in your old garb like it it doesn't work anymore like yeah you all need still suits that was really curious too for the way that the Atreides troops, especially when they moved in. Mm-hmm. But you know what I mean? I guess well, even the Harkonnen them. troops and the Sardaukar were equipped in some type of yeah protective, more like bio bioprotective. Right. And they, and they weren't there permanently, right? Like, well, some of them are, but um, even um, Patrick Stewart later on. Like, yeah. He had a still suit and he was a smuggler. You know? Right. And his still suit was like a white or tan or something. Right. Yeah. Like, so he, even he had to change a little bit. Um, and I think he was a, um, I don't know if he was a smuggler, but he was a, uh, um, maybe a guildsman. He was a, he was a, a spice collector. Um, or that's what happens in the books. Well, I think that my understanding was that they were smuggling spice. Oh, in some okay. way. I believe it sort of like they're rob or they're robbing there you know what i mean there's some type of shady black market situation that gurney got himself typical gurney locked into i know oh gurney man <laughs> gurney bros 
what are you going to do? <laughs> Old Gurn. <laughs> but uh, what I thought, that actually brings to mind something super interesting that I really, another little detail that I loved was, if you remember the scene where the Duke and Paul meet Dr. Kynes, yeah, and they're about to go survey the spice mining operation, Paul and the Duke's steel suits are fresh black, like they're black leather, they look fucking super just fresh out of like they just got that shit out of the box they look like out of the a, package they look like nicholas cage's superman <laughs> i don't know i've always i, I think the steel suits look dope I, yeah, wa- they do. I want one that would be the ultimate halloween costume that would be for sure maybe <laughs> aside from the guild of course of course but uh if you know but so yeah back to that scene so kinds his steel suit and all the steel suits of his sort of crew were all sort of brown. They had brown. They were dusty. And just look, they looked worn in. Like, like you could totally buy that. They'd this, been weathered. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which I thought was great, fantastic attention to detail. However, they achieved that effect on the, on the fabric was, that was super well done. A great little. I wonder if they just sandblasted it. Yeah. I mean, perhaps. Maybe there was some type of, like, they did some type of adhesive as well. With sand or dust of some kind, you know, yeah, I mean? you could probably do that. That was probably not too difficult. Ways. Yeah, yeah. But I thought that was very cool. The uh, again back to the guild. So they're wearing these really long tunicky leather ish, very drapey, very drapey, very much like a Rick Owens. Yeah. Like I totally, that's the vibe that I completely got out of it. Was sort of this Rick Owens like Julius, like this dark gothic sort of sort of look to it on a lot of the costumes, to be honest. But the, I think the yeah. guilds were some favorite and some of my favorites, and I really enjoyed. So obviously, you know, the dropped crotch is a big feature <laughs> of of the Rick Owens sort of vibe. Sure. And sort of that sort of the way that they waddled, I thought was really funny. And that, that kind of was... You could relate. A yeah, bit. I, I could totally relate. And to a little bit because that's sort of the meme-ish element of it is like that yeah you you have to waddle <laughs> due to the crotch being so low you're restricting your movement cooper <laughs> right i did also notice though that they're wearing some their boots that they wore were super like they had a really thick um sole to them as well like some really gothic style yeah sort of creepers sort of thing yeah, like I'm trying to, I'm struggling. Like, not, I mean, more aggressive than Doc Martens, right? But a similar, you know, what I mean? with like a heavier, yeah, with like a heavier, yeah, yeah. So, which I thought was really cool. I love to another little detail that they did was they had a lot of uh, like spice residue, yeah, sort of on their at their chi- under their chins and and things like that. So you, they had there were and there was even at the bottom portion of the uniform or their right because it's consumed as the gas, costumes right they had uh there was you know what i mean they were sort of grimy there was this mm-hmm. spice grime about them later on in the film too another detail that i absolutely have always loved is that so paul Moadib's actions on towards the spice supply on arrakis were ultimately leading to a shortage so 
they were going through spice withdrawals. And if you notice later on in the film, that's why the guild, they've got those sort of that pus coming out of their heads and they're looking kind of fucked up is because they're going through spice, spice withdrawal. Oh, I didn't even notice that. From. Yeah, because they're totally, they're obviously sense. addicted to spice. Yeah. So that's the signs of the withdrawal that they're right, going they're through. Right, they're dying. Yeah, which I thought was a, a really great detail. No, that's clever. I hadn't noticed that at all. Um, Let's see. Ooh, ooh, another costume that I really loved was the Lady Jessica's, her fur-lined rain parka. Oh, at the beginning, yeah. so it had the really exaggerated hood. Yeah, she was like a dome. Yeah, um, that was that was a badass look. She just looked so angelic. Yeah, with her, I don't know her facial features, just in the middle of that. I mean, those that jacket was incredible. It was like a it was like a good frame too. Like it obviously had like I, I don't want to imagine the mechanics inside of it, but even right. like it, it draped really in like a really cool way. Mohim's costume as well I thought mm-hmm. was really badass what I loved about the elements of that costume that were super interesting was the sort of it was almost like a chain mail kind of vibe um, around sort of the neckline sort of not quite I guess the upper portion of the bodice had this sort of linkage a chain mail is the best I can describe it it was also on they had sort of maybe gloves or the portions over the forearm to the hand yeah. was also that similar sort of style. Kind of like an industrial lace or something. Yeah, which I thought that those looked badass. It just looked really, really cool covering up sort of the chest up to the neckline. Yeah. Looked fucking awesome. Obviously, I think the the hats, with the shaved heads. That was cool. I thought it was a really good look to separate them and make them look yeah. sort of otherworldly. Well, just also just um, a focus on like a lot of bald heads. Like it's it really is an attention to the human head, which was I think what a lot of the costumes were meant to emphasize, right? Except for though, maybe the worst choice I think in in terms of the look of the film was the standard Harkonnen haircut. What was that? Kind of just <laughs> up. They were like blondish red. So heads. they had that shitty orangish red yeah but they had remember it was like they just took a fucking set of clippers and just did one oh, yeah one little like landing strip just in the middle the reverse mohawk yeah, yeah. the very <laughs> reverse mohawk <laughs> yeah that was i, I mean i imagine because it's uh, i mean 1984 this probably felt this was i mean radical it's pretty radical and edgy in a sense but like it's just so it's like eh. but then they put like a tampon on the top of their head right it feels really lazy i thought it i thought it felt lazy and like i'm sure there's a reason right like oh they get um everybody has like a heart plug but they also have brain plugs or something too which was also kind of a fucked up detail the heart plug thing like they yeah that was just lynchian weirdness i don't that wasn't in the no it's not it's i don't know I, I could have left it. I don't understand the mechanics of it. I thought it was, I don't know. It kind of was, hel- I guess it was a he- helpful way for them to portray the depravity of yeah. the Baron. How quickly they could kill anybody and face no repercussions at all. Yeah. Um, another costuming th- thing that I thought was kind of, a, I don't know, it was 
it wasn't so much a miss, but it was kind of funny. And another weird anachronism was, you remember when uh, Paul was doing the training in the early portions of the film against the, I guess the little, I don't even know, how do I describe? So the cylinder, yeah. basically, robotic cylinder yeah. that had all the attachments that would fire out at him. That sucked. Like, <laughs> that thing wasn't even mobile. Like <laughs> Yeah, I know, right? Okay, then don't get near any of its blades. Yeah. Okay. But what was funny about that is he puts on, did you notice that he put on sort of this, like, fencing yeah. sort of gear? Yeah. The white sort of fencing outfit, which that I thought was a really funny well, it's also like element how, of it. How bourgeois is the weirding way, like... <laughs> You know, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I didn't get the weirding way at all the way they did it. Like in the books, it's like a method of combat, right? Like it's still very hand to hand sort of thing. And instead, we get like sonar weapons or, or something. I think the Cubans have been using them recently. Um, I don't know. It didn't make a ton of sense. Something that people argued for, in defense of the change of the way that the weirding way was handled, is that. It would would have been a lot harder to portray this style of fighting Kung that Fu was associated with the, the weirding way, but yeah, that was, and so that the sound was a more I don't know, but I don't you know what I mean? Not my thing. I love Kung Fu movies. I just you know if he if they had been like one style of fighting and he's like no you must use all styles of fighting I'd be like all right I'll watch this kind of karate kid ish or whatever but i'll i'll do it um yeah because i mean you know it's the same sort of like star wars conceit where um blasters and guns and atomics and stuff that's gross nobody wants to do that (laughs) if we're gonna fight it's gonna be fist to fist or sword to sword or whatever or blade to blade blade to blade baby let's blade and that wasn't there right like these these guys rode in on worms <laughs> and shot shit from their wrists or whatever. It, with that, words. With words. Sticks Maudib. and stones. Maudib. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but <laughs> words will never hurt me. I wonder how uh I wonder how my accent theory goes into the weirding way. Like if you've got like an American accent, does saying Maudib <laughs> like is it more powerful? Is it less powerful? If you don't pronounce it right, then... Yeah, what are you the get, consonants you have it, to stress? It blows up your genitals. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> uh, did you notice that the Baron Harkonnen had his nails painted black? Yeah, it did. Um, his toenails, especially. Didn't expect him to be a goth kid, but no. I'm glad to see it. But, you know, in terms of, like, costume, like, it, it helped illustrate how pale and sickly this guy was. Um, if he had, you know... Without like they had to do something to the to the fingernails to, like accent it. and I th- I thought that was a good that was a good little detail. It made me feel weird. <laughs> uh, let's see. I guess that about covers my portion that I wanted to get into in terms of art direction and costumes. Do you have anything you want to add on that note? No, I mean I think I think you know. I've got to watch it again to like really appreciate that particular aspect. Like it, it's beautiful. It, but at the same time, like I have to demand that they think about like, you know, the characters and stuff. Um, and I think for most of it, they did like they met that functionality, like that really nice intersection between form and functionality for everybody, but the Atreides. So I'll going to stick to how much I hate the Atreides uniforms. Right on.
Okay. Um, I have some miscellaneous thoughts that I kind of just typed out. Yeah, I've been peppering them in. So. I really did like uh, the soundtrack, the Brian Eno and Toto. What a combo. I, I quite liked it. I thought it really enhanced, you know, it fit pretty well. I'll say I liked some of the triumph, like that triumphant sound during the battles. Yeah. That music, I don't know. I really. I guess I didn't really pay attention to it. Like, I typically do pay attention to score and stuff, but for this one, I think I was so trying to follow the book and, like, remember the book as much as possible that it blended into the background. That's actually a good thing, right? Like, um, if it had been a little too obvious, I would have been like, what is this? So, I, you know, good job. <laughs> Random moment, too, is when we have Gurney Halleck. So during the attack, whenever the Harkonnens are attacking Ara- the palace at Arakeen, Gurney is there. He's got a gun in one hand and he's got the pug in the other. Oh, that's and he's great. like, he's yelling the battle cry, Duke Leto. <laughs> I just thought that was great that he's fucking holding that pug. Like what? I would, I would have thing, loved yeah. to have been on set that day just to see where that choice came from because earlier I did I did notice like the pug is wandering the hallway yeah and I'm thinking battle. oh this <laughs> fucking poor dog is gonna die He's but dead. then he he is rescued he by saved. Gurney what well, happened what happened to that pug well Leto also like is I think in the book the Atreides are like the eagles or the falcons or something eagles, right yeah. yeah the Atreides eagle the Atreides eagle Replaced by the Atreides pug. Great choice. <laughs> Great choice, Mr. Lynch. I thought the the sound design in this film and sound effects top notch. The way that the the, the sound that the thumpers made in particular, yeah. and especially when they great. had towards the end, the whenever they huge had huge thumpers. They had yeah. all the thumpers going at once. Like that was that was pretty badass. Uh, it was weird that the that the Baron's staff was all mutilated. Like some of them had their ears sewn shut and their eyes sewn shut. I'm assuming this is just David Lynch being fucking weird to be weird. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I, it sounds like the Harkonnen just people. Cause like they're all humans, right? Is, is the thought, but like humans at this point should have evolved. Like, you know, we've, we've changed and if we're all living on different planets, we'll have all changed too. So maybe they're just more sickly and ganglier or something, but like, why would they still live on their planet if that was the case, right? Maybe they don't have a choice, but... We never see a Harkonnen woman either. No, that's quite. a good point. Yeah. They don't have any. I'll get to something in a second, but... Um, I mean, there are hardly any women in this film anyway, but... Yeah, that's true. There are no women in space. Ah, <laughs> oh, man, what was I going to say? Ah. Oh, it was the the guild report early yeah. on in the film um, where it's displaying the different planets. Like, Yeah, that was cool. Secret report within the guild. Three planets have come to our attention. Mm-hmm. It was Caladan, Gidi Prime, Kaitain, right. Arrakis. Right, a film book. The way that that displayed, that that was a super... That I think that even holds up to now. That yeah. looks very... It was very minimalist. The way that all the planets were displayed... The fonts. The font. Ah, mm-hmm. dude, I'm glad you caught that. 
I'm so glad you because I noticed that too. I was like, dude, this font is fucking on point. Very nice, sans serif. Sans like, serif, man. It was it was very nice. <laughs> That's so great. Um, it was very like Apple-y. and you know, like, yes, I, I think we thought totally was, was. We thought the future was going to look like a terminal or something, and actually, no. Like good design can be part of technology. Although they, they use a lot of technology, right? But they don't use computers. That was that was a pretty impressive. That 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 part, although I will say the chitane look was a little off. Sure, it looked kind of that looked kind of low budget, but the rest of the other planets looked fucking dope. Right, and that's the one they zoom in on, right? Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Like it didn't need it didn't need the ring. Like the ring just didn't sell it to me because like underneath it looked like Earth. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. I guess another weird detail that I'll try to we'll try to wrap up soon, but um, I thought it was interesting. I always I was wondering what the deal was with whether the decision was to dub over Alia in terms yeah. of voice. They they did it for a few characters. Um there's a Fremen too um towards the end that they dub over as well. Um I didn't get a lot of the dubbing decisions, which which, you know, is kind of unfortunate because the rest of the sound was so nice all the time. Um but even like the voice, like that's not what I thought the voice would be like, I thought the voice would be like, I thought it sounded, it sounded cool. Yeah. But it, but it sounded fucking scary. It sounded, yeah. Like there was a, you're, you're meant to be compelled to do these things. Not, you know, I don't know. Not scared. I mean, the power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ compels you. (laughs) Yeah. I've never been to an exorcism. (laughs) Um, I'm just, you said compel. You just, you said compel. I'm just trying to, I'm giving you, compel in a connotation <laughs> that fits this this voice no it's fair uh it sounded very very exorcist <laughs> it did honestly and now that you mention it which <laughs> again now, put, i didn't even make that connection to just now i feel like you know and maybe maybe you know a typical trope of this and this is a trope right like um seduction or whatever like this is part of why paul is so weird he can use the voice He's a hermaphrodite again, but yeah, I would have, I would have preferred something a little bit more soothing because it would have been even more disconcerting if like, especially for the eighties, if Paul is using a seductive voice uh, on right. these Harkonnens, like you guys don't want to hurt Hey us. bro. Hey, hey bro. Buddy. I like your haircut, bro. Yeah. Why don't you untie me, bro? Uh, would that be chill? Do you have a heart plug? <laughs> <laughs> Show me that heart plug. But uh, back to Alia's voice, what I, th- I was wondering what that choice was. Like, was it necessitated by this actress? So wait, you're you're talking about more than just using the voice, right? Like, no, I'm, yeah, I'm talking over. about literally. They actually dubbed over her all of her lines, and I'm huh. thinking. I, at first, I couldn't quite figure it out. I was thinking, well, ultimately, I came to the, the conclusion with n- very little evidence to go on that yeah they wanted to stay true to her being this small child but yet having the experience like you know what i mean she had the other memory she had the same power the other and they even mentioned that in the film she has all the knowledge of a reverend mother and yet she's a small child right she's like she's an abomination exactly so, um, so I think the dubbing of the voice was to give her a actual. So they wanted 
an adult voice, a more articulate adult voice to be speaking to portray that idea. Yeah, which it, I kind of, you know what I mean. I, I get it. I don't. It hate probably it. could have been pulled off better, better now, yeah. obviously. So you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, it did give her a weird. I I loved her. I loved yeah. her with the Baron. She was so fucking great. Wait for my brother, Baron. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty scared during. That was pretty spooky. I don't know. They they played fast and loose with uh, Paul's age too. Like Paul's like twelve or fourteen in the books or something, and it takes like you know six plus ten plus years for him to like get the Fremen to like a place where they're you know they can pull this off, and he's comfortable with the notion of his um, place in the jihad. You know. It takes a long time. Like, there's a really strong internal battle within Paul, right? Um, he has a son in this time, and um, you don't get that in the in the movies, right? Well, I don't think he doesn't have a. I don't think the, in in the book he has a son, um, and the in the movie there's more at stake, right? Like in the, the first Dune book, he's got the son, uh-huh. and the son dies. Uh, uh, okay. The the I don't know if it's it's the Sardukar, yeah, it's the Sardukar actually find where all the women and children are um, that the Fremen have left behind, right? They didn't bring most of them to battle. Um, They're meant to preserve the lineage. Um, And in that book, like, Paul feels his son die. And in this one, there is no place for the son, right? There's no place for real emotional or or the stakes that would bring. Um, You know, not only has Paul got the weight of potential universal jihad on his shoulders he also has this desire to live a simple family life in the fremen tradition with his son and johnny and he probably sees his son's death before it actually happens right um he's got to sacrifice it for um that particular uh, path that particular plan and that particular path although theoretically there were other paths there were other plans that uh had his son still alive but he can't pick those for whatever reason. So it's interesting. Um, like ultimately, like to get back to age, um, Kyle, I don't know, uh, comic Lachlan or whatever. I don't know how old he is during this, but obviously not that young. Um, where Aaliyah, I think they tried to keep age appropriate. Um, and I don't know if that worked. Well, she was, it was only like, she could have only been two, two years old, but she, oh, I guess she was, she was like a six-year-old in, in there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, But, like, you know, they could have been, like, not... It didn't just take two years. It took ten years. Like, whatever, you know? And then she's, like, um, a bit more like Arya. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. someone who is a child in every sense of the word, but actually pretty fucking scary. <laughs> it's really funny. Okay, so whenever she... Okay, so she fucking gamjabars the Baron and, like, sends him out into the hole that they blow into the emperor's ship and the baron flies. She makes him fly into the worm where he gets eaten. But it's funny because I, I'm guessing the explosion from whenever they blast that hole in the emperor's ship, she falls down and like she, whenever she gets up her little, she's wearing like that headdress sort of thing. And it's kind of crooked and like her hair is a ginger. It it looks fucking hilarious. Something's really funny about that. I'm glad that they, left that they left that because <laughs> they left that in They're like there's no way like the like it was so anybody's great. clothes is staying cool after an explosion like that's <laughs> right <laughs> that was one of my favorite little little ollie moments saint 
Saint Dahlia of the Knife. Right on. Well, uh, so I guess we should wrap up soon. I don't closing have, thoughts. What? Tell me your thoughts as far as like, what does this feel like in terms of the book in comparison, just in terms of your appreciation of it. Like, how does that, how was that impacting? I uh, I mean, you know, it, it's hard to be upset at the ambition. This is something that should never be tried as a movie. And they did. And, you know, I don't think they did a, I mean, they did a terrible job. <laughs> they, but they didn't have the easiest source material to work with. Like, imagine turning a Game of Thrones into one single movie or, um, the history or, you know, even the history of like, God, um, no, even dude, even turning Game of Thrones the into, books, a into a TV series yeah, is was, overwhelming. I don't even think that Dune is quite on that level. Probably it's, not. It's, eh. Yeah, it, but it's not. You're right. Like, it, it would just, the it did, sorry, the format wasn't there. Yeah. I think a lot of the elements to make this properly right were. And I think given, you know, 10 years of production and a billion dollars, this could be done <laughs> really, really well. Um, that being said, I obviously love the book. Um, the book, you know, I appreciate it a little bit more after seeing this because um, the one thing the book doesn't do very well is set up the entire universe outside of this Atreides um, Harkonnen conflict at first, or excuse me, and Fremen culture, right? Like that's where the universe is built. Um, here we see sort of like the industrialness and the ugliness that has to be the future. Well, that doesn't have to be, but like it's probably the future of space travel. So for that alone, it's worth it. Maybe don't read Dune beforehand <laughs> um, or maybe do. See, I think it would help to read the book. So I don't know if you could, a lot of people and they even actually before the theatrical yeah. original theatrical release, there was like a they handed you a printout that sort of had some description oh wow no that makes sense yeah so you yeah they actually had Star Wars. It, yeah they don't hand like when is a fucking movie handed you like i've got fucking homework i mean star wars makes you read that whole scroll yeah I but guess, still like they, that's yeah. different that's on screen that's not oh we're gonna we're gonna have print to out. This print the ticket here take this piece of paper so you you can understand this film <laughs> right i think it would be a lot harder to follow the movie if you hadn't seen read the book and that's what a lot of people that i've heard discuss it say yeah I but I, I i mean obviously i that's not the experience that i had but you know yeah. when i'm like four years old i'm i was basically alia's age yeah when i saw this movie so i mean yeah ultimately i agree with that but if you want to watch some visuals and and kind of hang out and Maybe just look at a pretty thing. It's a very pretty film. And maybe that's all it has to be. <laughs> what are you, what would you, what is your score for this film? What's my and a seven out of 10? Can you give me, do you, are you comfortable giving me that number? Out of 10? Yeah, seven out of 10. I think pr you're a seven out of 10. Uh, me for the, no, I, I wouldn't give, I wouldn't, I would maybe give it a, like just, off the top of my head, I would probably go with like a six. I'm probably closer to a four, like plot and stuff like that. Like I just weigh very, very heavily. Yeah, like right on. Um, I'm probably closer to a, closer to a four. Um, I'd watch it again though. Right on. Okay. 
Yeah, I'm at a six, but again, my experience, you know what I mean? This is a, a film that gripped my imagination. Yeah. At, you know, three, four, five years old. Yeah. So it's, that's it's, a totally different right. vibe. You know what I mean? I'm watching it's, the 28. Like, it's hard yeah. for me to, yeah, it's hard for me to look at this film objectively. Although I do know, I mean, I think you see its flaws. Yeah. yeah, I definitely, I recognize the flaws, but I still, despite all of its flaws and warts, just have a certain. Yeah. Sentimental, sentimental attachment. It's nostalgia, bro. But this film, I mean, I also do think, obviously, as a young young man, you know, this sort of messianic prophecy, prophetic character, you know what I mean? It's the hero's journey. There's something, there's a mythos to Yeah, you want to see yourself in it. Exactly. For sure. You I get f- that. I want to, you know what I mean? It's easy to identify with this messianic type character that has this very sort of just moral mission to avenge his family that was killed by the bad guys you know what i mean and for a for a child's brain yeah for sure you know what i mean yeah that's the appeal i think for me coming yeah. into it but yeah but uh we we will end on that note i guess unless there's any final thoughts on your end read Other the than, book <laughs> read all the books except for the kevin herbert the son god damn brian her brian herbert maybe god damn it ryan or brian um but yeah uh thanks for thanks for doing this thanks for having me on sitting through this uh this slog of a film man my pleasure (laughs) all right we are signing off